So I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And as always, the study sheets you have in your bulletin, I know will be a help to you along the way. As you do that, there are a couple things I'd like to chat with you about, just kind of one of those uh, little church conversations that I think are good to have every now and then, and especially today on this kind of a pivotal day as we transition from school year to summer. You know that today, of course, is the first official Sunday of summer. Isn't that good? It is, it is. And uh, really, people don't flee the area to all the campgrounds uh, for about another week or so. That's been my experience. So you're here. So wonderful. Glad for that. Uh, A couple of things then, if I may. Uh, First of all, I want to thank you, all of you, for your ministry this last ministry year. You know, churches run kind of like schools on a similar calendar. So in the fall, you kind of gear up and get going again. And dozens and dozens and dozens of you are involved in teaching and leading and serving and making coffee and cleaning stuff and loving people and praying and cooking things. And just, I, I can hardly mention them all, but, but dozens of you, my goodness sakes, actually hundreds of you all, are busy doing things, and I'm so thankful as you serve unto the Lord. So please hear my voice on that. You wonder sometimes, boy, did anybody see that? I don't know if everybody saw it, Christ saw it, but, but good job, good job, so thank you. Now, second, with the transition, of course, from school year to summer, um, most of our school year ministries have kind of landed for a bit, our community groups and a number of our ministries that run school year uh, are kind of done. But there's some different opportunities. They're represented in your bulletin, and we, we'll talk about them as they get a little closer. But I would like you to get on your summer calendar, for one, dinners in the park. Those are not about dinners, and they're not about parks. It's about an extended opportunity for you to connect with other people. You know how it is, Sunday mornings coming and going. Sometimes it's real easy just to be like ships in the night. How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. Everybody's fine. And off you go. And dinners in the park are one of the opportunities we build into our schedule to to bring a lawn chair and sit down someplace and have a little longer conversation. In a church with three worship services, that's especially important because there are people that you could worship together in the same congregation never see them. And dinners in the park, if you show up, are that opportunity. Of course, you know about day camp. Um, We're flying fast and hard after that. We've got a grade school rented. Hundreds of kids coming our way mid-July, but that's a big ministry and grateful for that. Now, a couple of other things before we step into the text. I want you to know that over the summer months, your staff and elders are hard at work preparing for fall. And that's that's a bit because um, last year, if you recall, uh, we, we chatted a little bit because last summer was our biggest summer ever. Every month of the summer was our biggest June, was our biggest July, biggest August in terms of people coming. And we're not a numbers-driven ministry, but here's the thing. Every, every number is a person. You're a number. I'm a number. We're people, right? Everyone matters to God. And for us to prepare ministry and programs and classes for everybody, we have to pay attention to this stuff. So last year was our biggest summer on record, and so we, we responded by adding a third service in the fall, and in some other things, right? Well, just so you know, if you're a numbers cruncher, and again, every number's a person, right now for June, so far based on the first three Sundays, here's a little number for you. We are averaging, uh, for the first three Sundays, 80 people per weekend more than a year ago. 
Can you imagine that? 80 more. If you're newer around here, welcome. So good to have you here. Glad you've come. Uh, if you had come last hour, you would have noticed every parking place was taken. Uh, praise the Lord. Good, good, good. But all of that to say, as we head into fall, we're working on it. We're working on figuring out all the, all the stuff that's needed, different classes to be added, how to maximize 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock, a number of things like that. So stay with us and, uh, and praise the Lord. Glad you're here. But um, a lot of things, a lot of things shift. We're evaluating so much. It's good. And then one final word, summer. Summer means some things. Summer means rest, recreate, refresh. I hope you do that. It's supposed to. It's supposed to mean that. Uh, take a little time off. Go to a park. Sit under a, a fruit tree. I don't know. Do something uh, that's fun and recreational. We want you to do that. But, but I don't mean all summer. If you're gone all summer, we'll just think, am I going to say what happened? But, but, but here's the, the other part of that is when you're in town, please come. Please come. Be here. Really. Uh, connect with people. And invite somebody over to your house. You have extra time. Ministries aren't all on the same um, schedule. No problem. Get a group. Bring them over to your house. Serve an apple pie from Costco. There you go. People will love it. They'll think you cook well. And uh, you don't have to tell them that it was Costco all the way. But, but be here. And then just to say as well, uh, Sunday next week, July 1st, we will step into a new preaching series. Ten weeks looking at the Ten Commandments. Not only what they are, but how do we interact with them? New Testament believers looking at Old Testament, will be looking at a lot of biblical study principles. How does a New Testament believer interact with, with Old Testament things? So, so come, come. Ten weeks, ten commandments. What did God have in mind uh, for us about how to live before him? So you'll want to be here. Um, I think that's, that's all my intro type stuff there. Thank you for listening to that. It's longer than I normally talk before we come to God's word. I want to pray for us, that God will help us as we come to the scripture. Join me, please. Our Father, it is with, with great joy that we bow before you as we come to the word of God. Your word is a lamp and a light, a foundation for our lives. It is, it is here that we are introduced to you. And it is the word of God that the spirit of God uses to shape us and change us and help us. And our Father, we need that desperately from you today. Uh, we, we sometimes fool ourselves into thinking that we are not in as much need of you as we are. Um, but indeed, we do fool ourselves. We are desperate for you, for your life to flow through us, for us to have a hunger for Christ, for us to long for you in a way that is right. And so, Father, we, we bow before you as we come to the scriptures and say, Lord, help us. Help me. We trust you now for your work in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 16, you know what that means, right? We're done. Well, almost. One study. Uh, one person said to me this morning, um, I can't quote him precisely, but something like... Um, so we're finally going to be done, huh? It was with a smile, believe me. Uh, and I'm sure it was said different than that. But that's my recollection. It's the best I've got. So we started our study in 1 Corinthians at the end of September. 
And as our normal pattern in preaching here, we spend a majority of our time really working our way through Bible books and thinking about not only what it says, what does it say it to people then, how does it apply to us today, how do we read and study the Bible now? We always try to do that, to use our preaching opportunities to, to shape all of us as a, as, a, as a church family. And so we've been doing this for a while. We've done this under the heading of Facing the Mess because, of course, you know that 1 Corinthians was a, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very messy church. Man, they, they had all kinds of problems. They did. There was a divisiveness among them. There was party spirit. They were divided along political lines and social class lines and racial lines and cultural. You could divide that way. They did it. Okay? And Paul addresses those things. There were moral problems, all kinds of things. There were legal issues going on. Oh, my goodness. It was a, it was a train wreck. But the Apostle Paul consistently, and this, uh, just every detail here is so important, the Apostle Paul continually pointed them to Jesus. He didn't just shame them. You know, we often try to change ourselves or others using our two favorite tools. Right? Shame and its correlate, guilt. We say things to ourselves like, I, I should be, I should be, I shouldn't want that. I should be so much further down the road than this. Oh, I feel awful because of, right? Am I singing your song? That's often how we, uh, some of us were raised with that. Shame on you. Do you ever hear that? Uh, I did, yeah. I won't tell you why, but I did. I heard it. Shame on you for that. It's like, oh my goodness sake, something terrible is taking place. But you know what? Here's the thing. Guilt and shame do very little to change our hearts. You know that? They aren't very effective tools to change us or anybody else. They can make you feel awful. They can do all kinds of messy things. They can make you want to not get caught again. I got really good at that. They don't change your heart. They don't change your appetites. So Paul's after something different in this book. And we've seen this pattern again and again and again, that God wants our hearts. He wants to change our hearts, and he does it from the inside out. Always, always, always. The gospel is never about just behaving better, right? If, if, if God could just turn us all into Mr. Rogers, that wouldn't be enough. Because he wants our hearts, our affections. He does. Now, I say all of that because as you come to chapter 16, Paul is going to address several areas, some by way of example, looking at his own life, some by way of, of just interacting over some things. But these are all areas affected by the gospel. That is the gospel because of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. We see things a little different, or we're supposed to at least. Okay? Now, I've already taken a little longer on intro than I intended. But I'm going to do it again. You know my normal rhythms, and it isn't this. But I, I reference here in this little paragraph in front of you an important issue that we've, you've heard before from this pulpit, but it, it affects the text. So I go here again. But Puritan Thomas Chalmers, uh, born in 1780, uh, lived 60 years or so. Um, he wrote a, a little book. It's not big. You can find this. I said, Google it. You can Google this thing, all right? I got it on my Kindle, or you can print out a little hard copy, a, a condensed version. This cool little book with a title that would never sell today called The Expulsive Power of New Affection. And it's about your heart. That's what it's about. It's about your heart and how it works. He's pretty smart for a guy who lived back in 1780, meaning that's the way we think. He lived a long time ago. How could he possibly know the human heart? Well, he did. He did. He had his own heart, and he had the word of God. Two things then. I have them here in front of you with a couple comments here. He said this. 
misplaced affections, that is loving the wrong thing. Here's what you do about that. It needs to be replaced by a far greater power of the affection of the gospel. His, his point was this. If you want to change, like really change, you, you can't just address the externals. You can't. You can't. We, we become good behaviorists. In other words, I need to quit talking like that, thinking like that, going there, doing whatever. So we fix the external. We, we try. We try. But if, we, if nothing changes inside, you know what's going to happen? One of two things. One, you're going to be right back at it before long. You'll have meant well. You'll have tried hard. You know, electric shocked yourself to say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that again. And then you do. You'll be right back there again. Or you won't, but you'll wish you could. You know what I'm talking about. I don't do that anymore, but man, I sure wish I could not get caught. So you're walking down the road saying, I'm not looking, I'm not looking, but your heart longs to look. In that case, what has changed? Only my externals, but my heart still is chasing the wrong stuff. And listen, don't you want more than that? Don't you want your heart to be free? Yeah, yeah, I do too. That's, that's what this is all about. That's what Thomas Chalmers was saying, is if you just deal with the external, it'll never, it'll never fix your heart. So second, second little bullet point, a new affection, he says. A new affection is more successful in replacing an old affection than simply trying to end it without supplanting it, without, with, with, without something, with something better. Hmm. I think that should say with something better. Wow. In other words, if you're going to just change behavior, in order to do that, you need to have your heart Love something more. That's what he's saying. You need to love something more than the old thing. Because if you do, a greater love will replace a lesser love. That's what he's saying. So in other words, don't just tell yourself, stop it. Turn your eyes to something better. And as you behold something better, that is Christ, you'll, you'll find your want to begin to shift, which is really what we need. You know what I mean by want to? You have one of those. Uh, it's called a will. It's that thing that says, I want that. You'll find that shifted, not because you yelled at yourself enough, but because Christ changed it. Okay. You're with me on this? Thomas Chalmers. Now, quick illustration, and we're going to jump right into these three things, and we will. Down the road, if you live around here, you know what I'm talking about. Cirque, if you go down, if you go down Bridgeport from Cirque to Fred Meyer, God gives us an illustration of this. It's there every year. I think about it every single year. You too can think like I think as you drive down Bridgeport. So it happens this time of year. Uh, Here's the deal. Here in the Northwest, there are two types of deciduous trees. I know there's more than that, but these two serve my purposes. One, uh, the kind that drop their leaves in the fall. They're all gone. You rake them by Thanksgiving and you're done. Right? We like those. Then there are others, like a row of trees right over there. They hang on to their dead and dying leaves all winter long. They look dead. If you drive down Cirque in January, you will look at those trees and say, somebody didn't give them the memo. Let go of the leaves. Stay with me. Illustration of you. That which belongs to the old, last year's dead growth, it fit yesterday, but it's dead and it's dying. You need to let go of it. So how do those trees let go? It's the power of new life within. In those kinds of trees, that's the only way they get rid of those old things. It's new growth from within that forces the old to to drop off. That is what Christ wants to do with your life. 
Okay? New life from within. Pushing, pushing out the old. First Corinthians chapter 16. He's going to deal with money, how we view problems, how we treat people. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Paul says this, now concerning, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Stop. Money. Now, there's no better way to check your heart and what you love than what you do with your money. You've probably heard that before, right? The Apostle Paul was not afraid to talk about money, nor was Jesus. Both of them said a lot about money. This is, this is a very brief treatment of this topic. Second Corinthians 8 and 9, have on your study sheet for your further study. Those are two whole chapters where Paul talks at much greater length about this topic. Okay? Uh, what, what you do with your money, how you view your money and your possessions, says a lot about what rules your heart. It does. That's why it shows up in the Bible a lot. Now, a couple of things specifically about what's going on. Okay, the descriptive part. Paul's describing a situation. Here's what's going on. Now, there's a collection for, for other believers because apparently there's a need of some sort in Jerusalem. You figure that out because that's where the gift is going in verse 3. So just a real simple reading of the text. You discover there are some Christians. Uh, the story's told elsewhere in the New Testament in a time of great financial need. And the opportunity is there for other Christians in other places to say, well, let's help them out. Because we have something and we can help them. And so they're going to take up a collection. They're going to do it on the first day of the week. That's Sunday by our accounting. Old Testament, Sabbath, a shifting to Sunday for worship in the New Testament in honor of the resurrection of Christ. People have wondered why that shift. In short, that's the reason, in honor of the resurrection of Christ. And Paul says, I want you to, I want you to give. I want you to part with some of your hard-earned money. I want you to give willingly. I want you to think about it. I want you to give proportionately as he may prosper, right? According to something different, it's about what you got and what you, not what you don't have, as he may prosper, and take care of it ahead of time so it's planned and it's done so that when the Apostle Paul shows up, they're not busy passing an offering plate or however they went about it. Why do you think Paul wanted it done before he came? My, my brain asks questions like that when I read the Bible. I wonder why. What's that all about? I, I don't know. I try to differentiate between my conjecture and what the text says. The text doesn't say. And I've wondered if it's because, I mean, if it was the esteemed Apostle Paul holding the bucket, would this affect how much you dug out of your wallet? The Apostle Paul's going, okay, give for the same. It might, and he didn't want that. He wanted people to give with a different motive than I better impress Paul. No, he wanted you to check it out with the Lord. He wanted you to think more deeply about that. He didn't want to, he didn't want to give in because of him. That's my guess. I, I can't say that too strongly, but I wonder if that's the case. So that when I come, it's all done, not affected by anything else. Um, as he may prosper, you know, proportionately, that's a New Testament principle. It, it is interesting to me, and you guys think about this, people who do surveys of this stuff, and they do, people who do surveys of people and their money discover that rather than the people with the most money giving the highest percentage, that that's not true. Did you know that? That the more money people have, the lower percentage they tend to give. Percentage. The dollars may go up, but the percentage the more people get, the more they percentage, the higher percentage they tend to keep for themselves. It's fascinating that way. Those who give the highest proportion are those who make less. 
It's true. Yeah, fascinating. It shouldn't be that way. Well, of course not, but it's the way it is. The more you get, the more you want to hang on to what you got. Maybe your heart's like that too. You've got to fight against those tendencies because you can think about what you love. I remember um, early on in my life, when I first started making money, I was in seventh grade and I got a paper route. Like, man, oh man, I'm going to be loaded. I'm going to make, I was making like $50 a month. Yeah, delivering paper six days a week, rain or shine, all year long. Sure, $50 a month, man. This is a couple years ago. I was loaded. So, so yeah, I know, I know. And my, 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 my parents did not tell me what I had to do with that, like save it, save it, save it. But my mom did say, okay, now that you're making some money, um, how much of it are you going to give? I said, I don't I don't know. And she, at her deal, she didn't make me do anything, but she said, I think you should pick a missionary or a, a good cause or a special ministry thing. I think you should give something every month. So I did. There were some missionaries. Um, this very interesting. I'll keep it short. I think it's an incredibly interesting story. I started in seventh grade, giving $5 a month to missionaries in Brazil. The, the, the gal had been raised in our church. So I kind of knew her, or at least knew her parents, but that was our church in Bremerton. So I started giving $5 a month out of my hard-earned paper out money. That was a big deal. I did it for years and years and years. Unbeknownst to me, I, oh, I knew about their work in Brazil. They're teaching and leading and writing books. Um, she did a lot of book writing. She was really good at it. Interestingly enough, I discovered here like three years ago. You know, you know um, Dina and Plinio? He's from Brazil. Guess who influenced his life? Yeah, no kidding. I referenced, we were talking as we were first getting to know them a couple years ago. Just reference, you know, Brazil, that's interesting. Bom dia, como vai você? That's all the Portuguese I've ever learned. But I might know something about Brazil because we were, years ago, I gave $5 a month to these missionaries named this. And he goes, really? I know those guys. I read their books. They shaped my life. Isn't that crazy? Huh. Thank you, Lord. That's kind of a cool little, wow. Well, God cares about what you do with your money because what you do with your money says something about what you love, what your heart is. And I'm saying this, in this gospel-driven book, as Paul brings the gospel to our lives, in this little paragraph, he brings it to our money. And he says to these guys, here's a need. I want you to give. I want you to think about it. I want you to plan it. Take care of it ahead of time. Don't want to be affected by me showing up. Gives a lot of other principles in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, as I mentioned. Take a look at those things. Plan it. Be wise, but give. Gospel affects your wallet. Now, verses 5 through 9. Something else. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. Now, this is largely biographical. Just tell them his story, but I'm after one verse. Paul says this, I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not, I don't, <laughs> I do not want to see you now just in passing. I, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Now watch this. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So largely biographical, talking about journeys and so on. But what I'm after is verse 9, as, as it's accompanying that paragraph. The gospel changes how we view problems. Do you have any problems in your life? Any at all? Yeah, sometimes they look like people, remarkably. Uh, not always. 
Sometimes we have, we have all kinds of, of obstacles and challenges. Sometimes they're financial. Sometimes they're, they're people issues or relationships or wondering what to do about things or the you know, very physical thing with the house or the car or the dog. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But here's what happens sometimes. Sometimes people, okay, we, come across a problem, and right away we view that problem as a, we say, it's a closed door. You ever heard that phrase? We, it's, it's a... It's a a Christian term, uh, we ran into a closed door, open door. Do I believe in closed doors and open doors? Certainly. God directs us a variety of ways. But I'm saying this, okay? Every time something gets hard, that doesn't mean it's a closed door. Sometimes it's just hard. And rather than saying, oh, I'm going to go someplace easy, let's, I mean, why do we assume that the path of obedience, the path of following Jesus, is, is known as his path because it's easy? Where did we come up with that? It's certainly not in the Bible. The path of obedience, the path of following Jesus, often is difficult, isn't it? Some, it'll make you sweat, and sometimes it makes you wonder, am I on the right path? I mean, this is, I mean, it's uphill still, still going uphill, still walking on rocky ground. I mean, come on, I thought it was supposed to be easier than this. And anytime you tell yourself that, I thought it was supposed to be easier than this, you should ask, I wonder why I thought that. That's your response immediately to self-self. Why do I think it's supposed to be easier? Because I, I don't think that's necessarily represented in the Bible, right? A wide door for effective ministry is open to me, and there are many, many obstacles. This story I just want to relate to you, not because it's a Christian story, so to speak, but I, it's because I, I think it's a cool story, for start for starters, and it's also because I, I want some of this stuff. Thomas Edison, you ever heard of him? I know, famous guy, famous American. Um, again, not, not particularly man of faith. I don't know his life, but that's, that's, I'm really after his attitude here. You'll see why. Uh, Thomas Edison, back in his uh, laboratory, back in 1914, December 10th, massive fire. Big explosion uh, erupted. Ten buildings went up. And ten were his. A whole bunch of other buildings went up in flames, too, that weren't his. A whole bunch of fire departments rushed to the scene. Chemical-fueled inferno. My goodness sakes, it's is on fire. Now, in this building, um, records, prototypes, years of work, all going up in flames. Uh, by today's estimates, today's dollar valuation, worth about $23 million, only a third insured. He's 67 years old. Okay. What do you do when you're 67 years old and your life dreams go up in smoke? Okay. Let me read you what Thomas Edison did. He said to his son, as they watched the fire, he said to his son, go get your mother and tell her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again. Isn't that cool? I love that. This is, I mean, he's getting marshmallows, I guess. I don't know. He's going, whoa, this is, I don't know if he was saying this is awesome, but, but go get your mother is really pretty close to that. Go get your mother. They'll never see a fire like this again. And then he stayed on the scene overnight, during which time he began to sketch out a plan to get her going again. Within three weeks, with a large loan from a good friend of his named Henry, let me think. 
yeah, Ford. Uh, within three weeks, he had some construction stuff going back. His factory had begun again. Three weeks, kept all his employees. Yes, yeah, some of them worked double shifts. They were committed to the cause too. And the next year they made, in their dollars, 1914, the next year they made $10 million. The point isn't the money. The point isn't the spiritual end of this. The point is, I want some of that juice. I want to drink that in the morning. Now, you're going to quickly say, you know, yeah, 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 that's really cute, but that's a function of personality. There are people like that, uh, like three, of course, in the United States. There are people like that who just cannot be stopped by anything. And you know what? You're right that there's some of this is personality-driven, but I'm saying to us today, some of this is faith-driven as well because you serve a God who sits in the throne of heaven, and sometimes open doors or closed doors are not just his way of saying, don't go here. Maybe that's a way of saying, you need to stop and pray a little bit about this. Or maybe it's just going to be hard for a while. Okay, maybe it is. You need to trust me here. You serve a mighty God. May I say, you're sitting right here in an example of that, this building right here. Remember 2004? If you were, some of you were with us back in 2004, not very many of you, but in 2004, we were in our other little building up there. We hadn't moved to the school yet. Not a whole lot of us. And in 2004, we made an offer on this building. And the answer was no, no, for the time. It was 10 years later, nine years, nine and a half years at, at Narrow's View, till this, door, this opened up again. And this had fire trucks in it, and God opened it in 2014. And we're here now three years later. All of this to say, okay, from the text, uh, in this little paragraph, Paul's talking about comings and goings and so on, but he's talking about how the gospel helps him to see problems, adversaries, differently. Rather than saying it's a closed door, it's awful, this is, no, no, a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me, and there are many adversaries, and Paul said, then full speed ahead. Okay? Not going to be sidetracked by anything that difficult. Now, moving on, verse 10, third, third little glimpse, how the gospel changes the way we look at things. In this case, how we treat people. Now, I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. Paul says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. See that no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus were the first uh, converts in Achaia. They've devoted themselves. Look at that. They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, to every fellow laborer or worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus because they've made up for your absence. Look at this line. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Now, um, a couple of things. This, this text makes me laugh, too. It does. Um, if you sit down the hall from my office, periodically, you'll just hear me laughing all by myself in my room. I'll be laughing. And it's because I look, I look at this text, and I want to know, why do you think Timothy didn't want to go? Well, so Paulus didn't want to go. Apollos didn't want to go. Why is that? And why does Paul have to say repeatedly, be nice to my boy, be nice to my boy. Please don't hurt him. Please don't let him be. Why do you think he has to say that? Think about this. Corinth is one messed up place. Huh? He's going to send his young guys. Timothy's a young guy. 
Paul, uh, Paul is his father in the faith. He's sending one of his young guys to a really messed up church. And he says, my, my paraphrase, please don't scare them too much. Hey, excuse me, church at Corinth. I'm sending my young guys. Don't hurt them. Don't scare them. And he says it repeatedly. See that he let him. Yeah. Put him at ease among you. There you go. He could have just left it at that, but he's not. He's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Don't look down on my poor boy. Help him on his way. What is it? In peace. And please, I want to get him back that he may return to me. I think this is really downright funny. Sad, but funny. As Paul says to a church, please don't chew up my guys and spit them out. I wish he didn't have to say that, but he does. And then Apollos, I love this. Concerning our our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you. This is Paul saying, Apollos, go. And Apollos saying, no, he's hugging a flagpole. He's going, no, don't make me go. That's the way I read it. Don't make me go there anywhere, anywhere. I'll go to Thessalonica. I'll go to Ephesus. Don't make me go to Corinth. It says it was not at all his will to come now. No, he's, he's hugging a pew, man. How come? He's got you two young guys. He didn't want to go. These people are going to, they're going to chew me up and spit me out. And Paul's going, no, no, no. Hey, listen. Hey, listen, folks. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that to people. Don't chew up and spit out my guys. And in fact, instead of that, let me point you to a better example. That's what he mentions this whole household. Why is he talking about Stephanus and these other people? They, they, it's because he's found a good example. And he's saying, why don't you be like that? Could you all just be like that as a congregation? They're devoted, it says. They're, they're devoted. They devote themselves to the service of the saints. They serve one another. What a great idea. And, and further, verse 18, this is what they do. They refresh my spirit. Let me ask you, don't you want people to say that about you? He refreshes my spirit. She refreshes my spirit. When, when, when we connect oh, you know, about whatever, I'm glad we did. I feel refreshed by it. I put on your study sheet several things. Yes, certainly don't scare them too much. Some of the fill-ins that I missed, you can go to the cheat part at the bottom and take care of those. But, but he looks at this. Here's this one little fill-in. Follow their example of people of Stephanus, household of Stephanus, by being life givers, not life suckers. I hope that that didn't sound too mean. But I think you know what, I'm, what I have in mind here. I want to say this. By life sucker, I don't mean people with problems. Okay? If you're going through a tough time, you're hurting, and you need help, you're grieving a loss, it's just tough. I don't mean by that that you're a life sucker. You're not. You're not. You're not. And you belong with the people of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, the contrast between people who build up and others who just like, you know what I'm saying? They're people, sometimes they suck the life out of you. And he's saying, don't be, don't be one of those. Don't do that. Don't be, don't suck the life out of people, folks. Don't do that. No, be one who refreshes the spirit of people. And may I say, uh, Paul gives an example of that by this letter he just wrote. You can refresh the spirit of people even when you have to speak about hard issues. Because he just did. He just did 16 chapters of hard issues. But he took him to the gospel. He took him to Christ. See? So you can refresh the hearts of people and still address issues. It's about how you do it and where you point people for answers. And Paul would, Paul would be an example that he refreshed their spirit. Not because he, he ignored issues. He didn't. But he spoke truth to them, and he pointed them continually to Jesus. And I think that's the point of refreshing a spirit. Is, is, are, are you 
pushing people toward Christ? Are you doing that? And when, when you finish a conversation, are people glad that they talk to you? When they see it coming, do they run? Are you, are, you, are you a life giver? Oh, I long to be a life giver. I think you probably do too. Want to be a life giver. Now, I want to, I want to make a couple of comments, and then I want to circle toward implications and response. Okay? But just a couple of explanatory things. Verse 13 uh, the text says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Now, you might look at that and go, wow, that wasn't very 21st century of you, Paul, to say act like men. Let me ask you this. Do you know what he meant? Back in a day when, you're, when your army is hopefully made of six foot six, 300-pound guys because it's all hand-to-hand combat, uh, you're looking for a certain type of people. They would not be looking for me. I would be cannon fodder. I'd be the guy handing them so, you know, more spears and things. I'll bring water. I'm not a six-foot whatever it is linebacker. Wrong guy. But you want those guys because you're going in mano a mano. You're going in hand-to-hand. It's going to get ugly. So when Paul says, listen, step up like men, you get the image. He's not intending to slight our ladies. But he's using, his readers would quickly have gotten it. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. You know, big, strong guys who aren't going to run from anything, they'll pull a sword first. He's saying, don't, don't run too quickly. Don't run. Come on. Stand your ground. So he's using a, a helpful way to put that. I realize sometimes people read the Bible today and go, wow, that's really, you know, chauvinistic of you. And you have to read it as a first century uh, with that in mind. He's okay. He's really okay. He's one of the good guys. And then a comment as well on verse 22. Okay? If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's the word anathema. And then his phrase, our Lord come, which is the Greek word maranatha. It's a longing for Christ to come. Boy, what's that about? That sounds very uncharitable of the Apostle Paul. And while I cannot speak to everything that's on his mind, I don't want to run from it either. But people sometimes look at that and go, man, does he, does he just, is he a hater? I mean, does he hate people who don't know Jesus? And if I could just offer you a couple of, of, of other elements to think about with the Apostle Paul. First of all, I don't believe Paul hated people who don't agree with him or hated people who don't know Christ. I give as evidence of that Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 1, where he's talking about his, his fellow Jewish people who don't know Christ, don't trust Christ as Messiah. And he says of them... Um, uh, my, my prayer, boy, come on, my longing, my prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. So it's, it's an expression there. I, I, want the, I want them to come to Christ. I want them to come. Philippians chapter 3, similarly, uh, starting verses 18, 19, and 20, the Apostle Paul references people who don't know Christ, and he says, I tell you now, listen to this, I tell you now even weeping. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. They glory in things they should be ashamed of. But as he introduces that section, he says, I tell you now, even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul does not take pleasure in people not knowing Christ. He longs for them to come to Christ. So however you read this text, don't say, well, he must hate people. No, he really doesn't. My best take on this verse is that Paul is looking ahead to an ultimate and final day of justice that, yes, in fact, will come. Okay, a day of judgment when that which is wrong will be dealt with and our Lord come, I want to see Jesus. That's my best take on that. And, and lest you say, boy, Paul, that's still pretty strong. Listen, your heart does the same thing. Here's what I mean. You watch the news and you see evidence of some horrible thing that takes place and somebody gets away with it. What's your heart say? 
your heart says, I want justice. I want justice. Doesn't mean I hate anybody. I want right. I want justice. I want judgment. I want, I mean, come on. Your heart longs for a day of, of, of justice. Your heart does not say when you see somebody get away with a horrible crime, oh, just give them a hug. I know that. It's not the way we're wired because we're wired. We're made by the, in the image of God. And we, we, there's a longing for justice that's right. That's the best I can do with verse 22. You mull it over as I will too. I want to come back to where we started. Under their section called implications and response, if I could. I just want to remind you of where we began and point us to Jesus. You know, heart change is significantly more lasting than simply external change. Listen, God, God wants your heart, your affections, not just better behavior. Okay, you hear this? It, it, real lasting change is always heart change. That's my title. Heart change produces life change. That's the biblical pattern. And I give you three texts. Um, the first one is a, is a, is a typo. My, my mistake. Deuteronomy 5 should be verse 29, not verse 20. This is in the Old Testament. It's in the law. People go, you're kidding. It's in the law. It is. Right? This is God speaking through Moses. As God says, oh, that they had such a heart in them. They would fear me always. God's always been after your heart, always, even in the days of the law. 5110, Psalm 5110. This is David, his prayer to God. What's he say? Create in me a clean, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. God, change my inside. Don't just, don't just fix my behavior. Please don't just fix my behavior. Please change my heart. Please change my heart. Because if you don't, if you don't change my heart, oh Lord, I'm in deep, I'm in deep trouble. Okay, a heart. God changed my heart. Mark twelve, of course, that great commandment: love the Lord your God with all your with all your heart. Jesus said. Now, I give you here Second Corinthians three eighteen. Spell it out. This this is what Thomas Chalmers was all about. Okay, that's a verse. The whole the, all that Chalmers says in the expulsive power of new affection could be summarized in Second Corinthians three eighteen. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. What are we seeing? What are we seeing? What are we looking at? What are we staring at? What are we studying? It's, it's the greatness of God. It's, it's him, his beauty, his glory, his awesomeness consuming me. What happens then? I'm being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of Christ. What comes first? Beholding. So beholding is how I change. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Then I am being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. To simply seek life change like outside stuff, external, stop this, start this. To simply seek that apart from the heart change is, is futile and it isn't what God wants and it's not what you want either. You want your heart to change. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. This comes from the Lord. I'm so glad that God cares about my heart enough to seek it, to chase it. I mentioned earlier that part of you that I called your want to. You know what I mean by that, right? That part of you that wants. I'll tell you, i tell you. Um, I need God to fix that in me too. Not just my behavior. I need God to fix my want to. Because quite frankly, you tell me this is only me. You can tell me later in the foyer. This is just you, man. This isn't me at all. I have no idea what you're talking about. You just, I dare you. There are times when I recognize an area in my life, I don't want to change it. I like it there. Is that just me? 
Sometimes we're comfortable with things that don't belong. And so we coddle it. We play with it a little bit. We, we keep it around. And how many times have I had to pray as well? Lord, not just fix the, this external thing. Not just fix my heart, but fix the want to in me. Because right now I don't want to change that. You got to start right there. Fix the want to. Maybe that's your prayer today. Because of the gospel, Christ, who died for your sin, rose from the dead, lives today, longs to change your heart. Would you stand with me? We want to close together in prayer. Our Father, on this day, we look to the word of God and we see the evidence of the gospel in this text. Paul addressing what really are big issues, what we do with money, what do we love, how we view problems, obstacles, how we treat people, all of them deeply affected by the gospel. And our Father, we deal with those same areas and a host of others. Right here in this room, we have so many things going on in our lives and and we need you to, to shape our heart shape what we love, shape our affections, that we would love you most of all and what you love. And then help us to turn away from those things that you don't love. And Lord, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to help our hearts on that because our hearts are drawn, drawn to love things we ought not. Oh Lord, we need your help. We need your grace. Thank you that you give those to us freely in Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.